energy in the room today. Uh, five papers is, is a lot. I know everyone's sort of qualified academics and we're used to extreme conferencing. It would have been six papers uh, had we had our final speaker here. But we really appreciate the, the, um, yeah, the, the quality of the, of the discourse, you're sharing ideas, you're networking. Uh, it's great. We will share the delegate list after today as well. It's interesting to see which institutions delegates have come from and interesting as well at what level of influence are we in our institutions. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on something that Tim said in um, your last paper, that actually it's not affecting change, you know, being an agent of change, being a catalytic peer and professional, obviously it doesn't mean that it's just being at the top of your organisation. Um, and as we are sort of teaching and influencing our students, um, our peers and, and colleagues, I would posit that one of the key design skills, uh, key professional skills that any young person emerging into a very complex world today needs is influencing how to listen, how to be heard. Uh, and I think the quality of the conversation today attests to the level of refinement of those skills within that sector. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so let's have more of that, please, in the discussion. And what we could do now is we could either start by picking up on some of these questions at the back, um, or we could just open straight away to the floor if anyone has anything, a, a, a provocation, uh, a wind of burning idea or you know, thought or question that they wanted to share, then please do. But if not, then we'll, we'll go back to the questions. Okay. Discipline, and discipline starts with boundaries to it, and, and everybody sort of gets tied up with that. That's the problem. 
Yeah, we, I, I was talking to uh, Vicki about that as well. And perhaps the word positioning might be uh, more descriptive of the kind of thing that we're thinking about rather than, you know, academizing the, the, the discipline in itself, which is, has got set parameters. I think the problem, it's interesting, because the problem about what's happened now is, I mean, and that's why I put that book of the dynamics of design or whatever I was taught, where you, you know, there's bits into about how to draw a square or three squares and things like that. You know, actually, we've lost some of that because, you know, we there's sort of some discussion on what are those underlying principles. If you're, if you're in mathematics, you know what the basic blah, blah equation is or whatever, but we don't in design. We still have arguments about that, despite the fact that we've had 40 years or the Design Research Society and the Design Studies Journal investigating its navel in terms of design process. Do you know what I mean? And what design is. So it's very interesting that we still sort of argue about that. Uh, sure. The, I mean, I basically agree. I think part of it is also the isolation of the discipline. So it's not necessarily that there's something yeah. wrong with having disciplinary knowledge, because clearly you know, it's hard to even imagine the world without it at this point, although other societies have done it. Um, but nevertheless, we are completely based around that. But I do think the way that things have evolved, where the disciplines, even within broad fields, like within the social sciences or within design, barely talk to each other, much less across those lines. So, you know, I know the social science school where I'm from prides itself on being interdisciplinary, but they mean that's putting politics together with sociology, not not politics together with you know uh, design, chemistry, or anything like that. Yeah. So you know, I think having people spend so much time in a sort of disciplinary isolation is really problematic, and you can't. So you lose the ability to speak outside of your discipline. I think it's really problematic for everybody. Um, it doesn't mean you have to, as I said before, become the other, but we've just been having a whole series of conversations in the US, myself and the head of New School of Social Research, because there's, I don't know if it's happening here, but there's a, well, actually it is happening here. Most of the companies are actually European social science consultancies, and most of their clients are in the US. And the companies are in Scandinavia and the UK, um, and their clients are mostly in the US, and they're finding it much easier to get work in the US, but no one in the US is doing that work. It's kind of a funny situation. But nevertheless, when they talk about it, so we've had lots of conversations about what are you looking for when you hire a PhD in sociology or whatever, in a discipline. And they said they don't want applied. They do not have, everyone said we are not looking for applied anything. We're not looking for applied economics, we're not looking for applied anthropology. We want deep, serious, disciplinary research. But what we do need these people to be able to do, on, as well as that, which can be done in workshop form, is like, how to speak extemporaneously about your work, how to shorten what you're doing, how to actually make propositions without saying further research required, how to be somewhat generative in a sort of critical environment, and how to visualize your ideas as well as representative language, and so on and so forth. There are a set of basic skills that they just need to run alongside the normal, and it's basically the skills that you need to speak about your discipline to people outside your discipline. And I think that's really important. <coughs> I'd, I'd see that problem completely differently, and in a way, the, there's a conversation between Hal Foster and Hans Albrecht in some publication a while ago, where the Foster gets to the point where he's saying that interdisciplinarity has created a, a system where collaboration now is built in. This is the beginning. This is the baseline of all disciplinary work. Is collaboration is built in. And, and asks, you know, uh, and states that as a, 
in, a, in terms of a problem. And then he footnotes that, quoting back from Obrist, who says, yes, you know, we're in a position where collaboration is, is the baseline of all things, but what is the question? And, and I think this is the situation we've now got to. We've, we're talking about discipline and interdisciplinarity and multi-trans, all those things which are in a sense facilitated by this, and the word collaboration came up in everyone's talk today. I mean, it wasn't by accident, I'm sure. It's, it's, it's just the state of affairs. But it seems to me we, we actually do not now know what the questions are. Uh, and that is a more, more interesting way to think about the very real problem that I think you identified by what, what you wrote. And, and this is, I think, the core of why we've tried to bring design school and call it the future of the project, is what are the questions that are going to kind of drive the, the, the future of that kind of educational model. And, and I don't think it is in any terms, you know, inter-trans, multi, all those things. The disciplines have, have effectively disciplined their way forward for a long time. Um, you know, and, and the word is not just framing a field, it's framing an attitude, um, which has not particularly been healthy. But uh, we might be partly guilty of this thing because we've written, you know, Something not designed without discipline. Um, uh, basically, saying that we when we created the term alternarity, which is design the discipline beyond you know, other than discipline. So, in a way, that it seems to me the issue is not so much what's happened to discipline, what is happening to within the relationships between disciplines or multi or trans. It's what's the question that brings everyone together. That is far more important. I agree with that in the sense that I've always made, made me nervous. The and it's kind of the academy version of this that when designers designers have been striving so hard to turn design into a discipline. Mm -hmm. I remember I was sitting at a, one of those early PhD conferences with Klaus Krippendorf, and I didn't know him. And I was very nervous. He was a grand figure, and I sort of said because everyone was talking, we've got to be more like chemistry. We need a canon. We need a discipline. We need this and the other. And I whispered in his ear nervously that. I don't know if I really buy this. I think design is kind of more like a non-discipline. Really. So it's not a non-discipline, it's an anti-discipline. <laughs> <laughs> so I do fear that the We're still talking about it. We're still talking about it. <laughs> so I agree with that. Um, something that came up, we were working on a white paper with um, Robert Ruth Bernstein, who was the author of the study at Michigan State University. Um, and this is in part so not something you raised in your statement slash question, but Interestingly, who is responsible for the disciplinary knowledge? Is it the professor or is it the student? And what they came to was that it was the student, that the professors would teach the disciplines and it was the student's responsibility to be able to sort of skip across. And how do you create that connective tissue for the student to be sort of the pollinator? So I just thought I'd add a very interesting statement that I made. Okay, fantastic first question. Yes. Kind of building on that, I guess, this notion of collaboration, design kind of fits in between the social and the harder sciences. So when you're applying for grants for ESRC or EPSRC, you know, this, like it's so complex and uh, it's so complicated getting these grants to facilitate collaboration. Um, have you any suggestions for, like, I'm, I'm very new to this game uh, when you apply for a handful of grants? and been shot down and been told to go to the other side and have gone there previously. So it's kind of creating a platform for collaboration 
seems to be quite difficult because we don't design itself, people don't know what it is. We don't really have an identity because it sits in between. So my experience is never applied to ESRC, the Economic and Social Sciences Research Council, because it's run by social scientists who don't get design and won't actually have anything to do with it. And they're only obsessed with methods anyway, actually, that community. Quantitative methods. Uh, yeah, and qualitative, but really rigorous qualitative. Um, so you go to the EPSRC, because they've got the most money, and you couch the term design in engineering words, and then you do what you want to do when you've got the money. Are you sure you're getting all your secrets away? <laughs> He's trying to stop me. But, but um, seriously, I think that problem is coming to an end because the, the new, I can't remember it's called, RC UK or whatever it's called, the new body that brings all the research councils together and Innovate UK are going to actually start to force the research councils to fund more, I hate the word cross-disciplinary, collaborative research projects, and the first one they're actually putting money into the pot one is around urban living, and um, I happen to be chairing the, uh, the committee on that one, so I can steer it, but, but that is that one has got to have all the research councils in, and it's got to look at the problem rather than the disciplines, and how the, it, the, the collaboration is coming together to solve it, so I think you're in the new era where you have, may have more opportunities, so yeah. keep a look at that. I think, I think that it, I wouldn't say it's EPSRC or ESRC. ESRC. It's the third way, AHRC. <laughs> and, and, and then design, design is a kind of highlight Sorry, for, for AHRC at the moment. So, you know, I think, I think it's design researchers, if that's what we are in this room, then, you know, times are quite good for us, actually. Um, and will be because they can and, be and will be. I mean, I think I think design is going to be under highlight for at least another two or three years, yeah. um, probably longer. Um, but there's a number of things that they they will not, you know. Or there's a number of things that they w wish to see, and that is greater interdisciplinarity, greater collaboration, and I think you know collaboration in terms of not just between the, one academy and another academy, but between cultural organisations, businesses charity, third sector organisations, so it, and, and for the work to have, to have impact or at least lean towards some kind of impact. Yeah. Mm. That's the, the English stroke, Welsh stroke, part of the UK situation. Well, yeah. Certainly. Oh, yeah. <coughs> the other thing to do is get on the, any review college you can to see how people write work proposals and then get on panels to yep. see how yeah. they're selected. Certainly, encouraging what Paul's saying. Certainly, encouraging that the AHRC would see a collaboration between a museum, an English institution, and given the long what relatively shorty an Australian institution, which is very very. And actually, the new the new wave is um, international, um, overseas, global challenges that they wanted to fund to. Yeah. yeah. And interestingly, the, the feedback from the peer review on our application. Um, was that the research council really liked the substantive content and where they would have liked to see more development was in that international, the global nature of the network, hence now wanting to have a, a fourth summit and who knows what else might happen after that. And perhaps one of the, the legacies or the impact piece from these summits, which are very generously spaced, three summits in 18 months, <laughs> we're still going to have lots to talk about um, as they roll out, is that perhaps there will be other bids and partnerships, collaborations, which will emerge 
from the conversation today, which will take some of these uh, problematics that we're sort of surfacing now and explore those in, in greater detail. I think that would be a really fantastic outcome to keep the conversation going. Should we pick up another question from the from the back? Um, yeah. So, do we? Was that third one down? Do we need to blow apart the academy and move to a campus bracket creative beyond barriers design school uh, head school, head, head school for the twenty first century? Who wrote that? Oh, Would you I like to? Could you? Yeah, could you yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Alex Milton, so I'm the sub program director of design. Um, and former academic who's escaped academia for a period of time to work in policy. But I suppose what I was trying to get at those series of questions was, um, I suppose we, we know we're in a situation where there, 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 there are enormous plethora of schools, you know, opening up. Everybody's moving into design. So in, in Ireland, we've got a population of four and a half million, and we have 24 dis, dis, distinct providers of higher education in design, which is, you know, a challenge. To then, in terms of where that where that fits, and I suppose. One of the things, and certainly in an Irish context, but actually internationally, is that you know we're obsessed with the idea of still, to some extent, the Ivy Tower, the Academy, to building something. I was up last week in uh, Glasgow School of Art up in Inverness, and you know they're building this new regional campus in an attempt to try and engage things. But it's still a fixed academy; it's still a place to go. It's like Black Mountain College or Nova Scotia. They, they have a moment, but I wonder whether in this sort of transient space, in this trans space. You know, the head school, the idea of this transient school which moves about that actually engages, that, that's problem-based, is something that we should be looking at rather than trying to um, construct, I suppose, a series of, you know, leading institutions that are effectively cannibalizing each other. Mm. So, I don't know whether that's a question or a statement, but it's just, yeah. yeah. I like that. That's a, a, a what-if question. Who, who, anyone from the panel like to engage with, with that question? I would say as a, as a um, sweet, so the, the model, the conceptual model for learning at the new design museum is the model of a campus. Um, and we sort of alighted there in the end because partnerships and collaborations are absolutely the sort of sine qua non of learning in, the, in this new type of museum for the 21st century. Um, and we'll, we'll wear that for a bit and see how, how comfortable that feels. You know, the museum has to be constituted through relationally. You know, it, is, it cannot be just in and of itself a, a building, a collection, some learning programs. It has to be something that's, that is much more um, connected and um, uh, inclusive, uh, outward facing, uh, able to speak many different languages. Tim's point reminded me of, I think, the sociologist Basil Bernstein, working in the 1960s, 1970s, talked about shared codes in professional practice. And um, if one were being Machiavellian, you might think, well, the better, the more I can speak business or you know, whatever, funding applications, the more effective I will be able to be in my institution. So taking that piece of work and making sure that you build those relationships across the piece and you don't work in a sort of siloed sector. Um, I think it's also it's very interesting seeing how museums are changing for the 21st century, but we're going to have that conversation in June 2017. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, yes, so the, the campus model I think is, is very interesting to, to think through um, and whether that's still relevant for 21st century design schools. Rachel? Um, I'm sort of thinking it through. So we've just had a, uh, some funding for 21 PhDs, some at uh, the Royal College of Arts, some at Lancaster, and some at uh, Newcastle. And they've done their PhDs by doing multiple projects out with industry in different sectors, not just industry, but public and 
private sector. So the PhD was not institutionally based, it was somewhere else, and sometimes impaired. Then taking your model further, it might, you might say, give us some funding for some five PhDs to go and work in uh, Oxford University or Harvard or something else with a group of people on a problem for three years. So I'm not sure it would work for undergraduate, but you might be able to do that for postgraduate and, and PhDs where you've got some funding, almost like your uh, interns, but a group of them. And they actually went and worked in Westminster or somewhere, and, and, and then you can look at that and think, you know, this is a research bit. They're sort of activists, you know, they're sort of design activists that actually go and do their PhD somewhere and, and they report back to base or a number of bases. So, you know, you might fund five PhDs, but they might be from five different institutions, design institutions that have different design trajectories and things like that. But it would bring their academics together to sort of, uh, no, no, stop that there. I'm writing a bit already, so. Uh, <laughs> but do you see what I mean? I mean, I think you can do it that level. I'm, I'm stretched to think about the undergraduate level unless you actually did it in conjunction. So you said, okay, the university will allow us to give an undergraduate degree for students based at the design council, the design museum or the design council or design body for three years. And we'll do it there for three years in conjunction with that, see if it works. And if it works, we'll do it somewhere else. Basically, the students were not, were not based in the actual campus, they were somewhere else. So, so I think we could do that. We could take some risk. But, yeah, I think we could. Yeah, and I would say on that model, definitely open for business. <laughs> very interested. Um, gentleman, question? Yes, a very simple question. Um, we are talking, of course, quite deliberately, um, the title of this conference and so on, about um, designers, design at the tertiary level and so on. My question is, uh, since funding has come up, um, do you think there is now a need to look for us to look not only at PhD level, how we communicate with each other, but actually a, a basic educational need uh, to help schools, I'm talking about the UK now, um, to be more proactive in design education at a time when that is actually being distilled at a rate of knots out of the curriculum in primary schools and secondary schools because of the uh, silos of knowledge which are linked to the attainment obsession in our society. Did your student project go to K-12? Almost all K-12 is where we started it. Um, so I'm trying to understand the question exactly because I, I zoned out on the UK and the UK and I said, it's basically, can we get design into the Yeah, so actually, um, in the United States, we have something called core curriculum. If, you, if your state adopts the federal core curriculum standards, you get more money from the federal government. If you don't, you have no choice as a state. Um, there is now an engineering um, core curriculum for the first time. I think only one state has adopted it. And in Rhode Island, we are actually pushing for a design curriculum in the KB12, and we would like to be the first state in the country to have the design curriculum. So, um, we do think that it's important to introduce it at the K-12 level because at this point, I am, we've been so successful in selling the idea of design, at least in the state of Rhode Island, that now everything is designed. And so I find myself with forms trying to correct people that no, that in fact is not design, that is engineering. 
Um, in fact, it is not designed that is architecture or what have you. So I think it would be really great to, to have that as, a, as a, a core standard, at least in the United States. So I think that would be easily. In the public schools in the U.S., for example, here, all the arts have been decimated. In the private schools, it's a completely different story. Yeah. In the public schools, just keeping art and music and stuff is a hard enough struggle. Yeah. So I'm never quite sure which one I'm fighting for, um, if I were to fight something. But I think where design has had an impact in some schools, I'm not sure about other, is actually not so much as a content area, but as a form of pedagogy. That's becoming more and more popular, where they're taking teachers through kind of design processes yeah. to look at curriculum and problem-based learning and sort of iterative processes with students over the education. Yeah, educational design, yeah. So, and, and design as a form of learning. There was a whole high school in New York that set up with design as the learning process for all subjects. Um, so the students start to get to understand design in that way, that they start to iterate and start to problem solve and start to imagine futures in various ways, drawing the disciplines into a design process, physics or history or whatever. So, and then I say it's a mixed bag as to how that's going to the early days. Um, what do you, how do you feel that is, might be effective in comparison to having a standalone discipline and understood as itself? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I guess my bias would be, I would be okay with it that way if we had strong art and music and performing arts. And so we go to the traditional goes um, so the legislation that I I just think having students working materially and creatively is probably what is most important on the one hand, right. and then having some sense of how various processes work on the other hand. Whether we call it design or not, I'm not animated about that. That seems to be extremely encouraging, those two comments. Of course, in the UK, um, music and the arts and design technology have been taken out of the corporate. Yeah. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think we need two ways. We need the advocates to keep on bashing on like you've been doing about the value of design. And we also need what I call, what you might call in America, design moms. So, so uh, you know, when my kids were in primary school, I didn't work all the time. And I actually went in, I didn't teach design, I actually taught ceramics. But that was because they had no facility in their, in their primary schools for any sort of those sort of activities. So the only way they could do it and fund it was actually get moms in to do it. So I think we need bottom up and top down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm interesting that, that school I was uh, talking about was a public school, which yeah. that's a hell of a task in New York City to get a public mm -hmm. school up and running on time. Yeah. And they got millions from Gates. Yeah. I think what's interesting with the UK context now, the there has been a campaign E back for the future, Dodge led by the um, Incorporated Society of Musicians, and there was a big, um, uh, you have to sign up for, to get 100,000 signatures on the petition to then have the debate um, in Parliament, and that was successful. So step by step, um, now, you know, the constant white water of education policy, oh, if education could stop being an ideological football, you know, doing goodness knows what with our young people's futures, that would be wonderful, but we're not in that situation at the moment. But at least we did, we've got that petition through. So, I, I mean, I really think the STEAM, the RISD STEAM model is so interesting in that you've, you have fostered those effective, impactful uh, connections between education in a, a, a context that really does know what it's doing and changing policy and funding. And to make those, to get those levers working all together, you know, no wonder it takes four years. Um, 
and I think there's a lot there that we could um, probably learn from and affect, and we have to do it now. <laughs> we really do. You know, the, the thing that makes everyone's hair stand on them, which is the language of the legislation, is that it's to enhance STEM. But honestly, do you really care? Mm. I mean, it's funding for the arts. So you have, to, you, have to, you have to sort of get your foot in the door on yeah. what they're interested in, and then push through with what they want. If I can just go to the floor. Okay, I have a, a quick question for, I guess, all of the panelists. Um, in terms of affecting and then facilitating these kinds of changes within science education, I wonder what provisions there are within your respective institutions in terms of staff professional development um, and teaching and learning days or how to become, or the time and resources to become more familiar with the language of policy and the different pathways, how to become more effective mentors for design students. Um, and it's also, I think, an increasing problem as more and more staff become um, hourly paid lecturers, associate lecturers, and don't necessarily have access to a lot of that support and training. So I'm just curious if your institutions are dealing with that. Well, we have different models in different institutions, I think, even in the UK. So in Lancaster, every seven terms, a member of staff has a, a term free to do research, to, do, to develop so, you know, and I think I would go to my death defending something like that because it just took the time to actually do, do some thinking. Would you not, Martin? You know, I just take time to think. Um, I think that, and I also think we need to ensure that our, our leaders, our, uh, so I think mentoring junior staff is a really, if you've got to talk about management and academia, I think often people think about their students and, they, and, and the hierarchy doesn't think about mentoring their staff. And I think mentoring staff to achieve their ambitions and learn is a critical thing. And giving them exposure is critical. And I think we often haven't in education thought about that enough. We're just doing the math. So you're going to have to get a sabbatical, basically, two or three years? Yeah. A term sabbatical. I, I currently am on a year sabbatical, but I haven't noticed. <laughs> I think there's a, a point you raised there, though, Rachel, that the, the transition, and you described it in your own transition from you know, education to practice, you know, one teaching one class and then two, and then suddenly you leave the door to an academic. But the, there's a historic, certainly in the fields that we nearly all as a work have probably all taken that part, is that when we sign off the contract for that first job, which has been based on look at the marvelous work that you've done, that's wonderful you know, output as a designer. But the minute you sign off on that, the university imagines that you already know that the, its criteria are none of the things that it employed you on. Its criteria are the three things that get you promotion, which are research, teaching, and engagement. And, but it never, ever describes it. I've encountered working with staff in multiple institutions for 20 years that, who are enormously frustrated, don't understand why they, everything they do is not understood, is that they've never worked out that the minute that they signed the contract, the thing that they did was no longer what was valued. And that they have to, in a sense, in, to understand to be an academic. But that's so, why I think um, mentoring mm -hmm. and line management is critical mm -hmm. in helping people transverse that. And actually, helping them to articulate that practice is of value, but how to articulate that is, is critical. And I think a lot of universities have equivalent of, of PDRs or what have you, and this, that, and the other, 
it's sort of in some senses, you know, sort of like, oh, take that, done that, you know. But actually, I don't care about feeling those forms in so much, but I do care about people that actually, you know, when we started Imagination, it was Martin, myself, and about five others. And I insisted on, on the people that I work with having a monthly mentoring meeting for the first couple of years to get it off the ground. So my institution's gone from horrible to adequate. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, <coughs> because part-time faculty yeah. who are yeah. through the yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. We built up full-time faculty from about 30 to 170 in a very quick time, and then the university typical useful style, everyone was going that way, everyone that way. Brought in tenure uh, for the whole university for the first time, which has been interesting. It's been kind of very, very, very complicated to actually bring tenure into a very old institution. You had to sort of make I don't think this is a problem just for design, though. I think actually universities are very bad at yeah. their management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like to add, I think that there is also this uh, culture, both in design culture also in an academy, So that could be a commitment today um, for everyone in the room to go back and think about well, who, who, who might I mentor in my institution or I might go and you know, manage upwards and, and arrange a mentoring relationship. I think often these things, they, they can seem um, uh, perhaps a bit sort of insurmountable, but we all know that sort of local action, step by step, you know, we, like one can affect changes. Just before I take the next question from the floor, I'm mindful of time, so we would finish um, by sort of five o'clock. There's a, there's a question, there's definitely the last question that I really want to open the discussion up on because it then segues nicely into our second summit, which is the relationship between design, education and industry. So we'll close with that one, but we'll just come back to the floor. Well, the question is just to, uh, to add that yeah. um, I'm from the University of the Arts and we introduced the research mentoring scheme there linked to personal research plans so that staff felt that they could plan ahead, get support, get mentoring through very long. I want to ask that question. How many people are here are mentors or mentors? Okay. I, th I think Craig's point, um, I mean, I, I think it's getting better that people who are moving from one, one academy or one industry into, well, into the, the first position right, at the university is getting much better because I think we're, I think design's reaching kind of a maturity that people have worked with, with others, cultural organisations, with other sectors, with other disciplines. Um, and they're kind of well aware of the, 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 the game, the, the, you know, that the research has to have significance and impact, to be collaborative in nature. And I think they're much more aware, um, certainly that, than I was, um, of their kind of value to the university. And I think the level of um, negotiation that goes on is much more mature, much more comprehensive, and it's sincere. And it's it's got, it's got to be being optimistic. It is, yeah. He's just going to thank us. Oh, yeah. It's all rubbing off. So, yeah. 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 so yeah. I think it's changed. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's changing for the better. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
And I think this is to segue that to the gentleman from Leeds. I know that's who was looking for the research grants. That's a classic mentoring thing. And I, I didn't understand grant writing at all. I'd say find anyone in the university who put in and writing grants. I don't have to be a design person. Once they show you the basic mechanism of getting a grant, people are really good at it. It's like, oh, okay, that's just a basic little structure you have to Fantastic. So there's a there's a great mentoring action. Um, Vicky at the back, question. Um, I just I think most probably everybody in this room is invested in the material and analog world. Um, but I was sort of reminded of the thing that happened recently in the UK where economic students uh, sat in protest against a curriculum of economics and theory because all that amount of education did not receive the financial crisis. Right. And that eighty percent financial crisis was generated digitally by people untrained in higher education. So I'm kind of wondering, because I haven't heard much about the digital, not as technology, but more as culture, more as where individual knowledge is being produced and generated and distributed, whether we're sort of talking to ourselves in a future city world that may not exist in 25 years, or will only exist for us who are very invested in this higher end, um, and particularly with what we can see is student debt. Uh, one of the reasons why I think museum is proving in this country to be one of the real competitive providers of education is because it's free space, it's short courses, it's specialist target problem-solving knowledge in a community of vested interest in the public. And I just, I just wonder what the panel thinks about what the digital is, where it's featuring in your thinking. Um, So I think we have still 
have to design in both and understand the relationship between both. I don't think it's a separation. I think that they're just working in which we're, our designers will operate, but we also have to make some agreements that they're both. Not just the code, but the, the value systems that have to be developed. Privacy, privacy, identity, all that stuff. What I've noticed a lot on the design side, a lot of their new work seems to be trying, it's less of this disruptive kind of impulse and it's more this kind of new forms of reconciliation between different worlds, digital worlds, physical material worlds, relationship institutional worlds, and attempts to kind of work across them in new forms, which is a little more interesting, I think, than the kind of more bland, disruptive, kind of let's just scorch earth and put something on top of it. The only other thing I'd say is that I think, you know, our studio art, studio learning has been impacted a little less by the whole online area than, say, business and other areas like that. But I think with VR coming on with a rush, virtual reality and augmented reality, I think that's going to have a big impact on studio learning. I think there are a lot of people, a lot of these companies are, have education as one of their key dimensions. So I think even people like Magic Leap are doing an extraordinary you would think education would be one of the things they're really interested in. There's, that's one of the three main platforms they're looking at for, for their astonishing new technologies that are coming out with, where you can imagine studio environments actually working in a virtual space. So I think actually for our style of learning, we that may have a big impact on going forward. Particularly when you look at the cost, and the, and the cost of being physically planted in a place, going back to the previous question, it's massive. You know, people and, and the buildings, it's, it's massive. So, with the cost of education, people are just going to continue to crack the system every which way until finally one of these, both parties, but the only thing the Democrats and Republicans are agreeing on right now is that education is a cartel that is fleecing the students and they're going to just try and bust it up in some way or another. And that probably means giving accreditation rights to more of the kind of other providers who are using this kind of technology and other entrants who currently are locked out because they can't get accreditation. And once that starts to happen, together with technology, then I think we're getting that here too. Sorry? We're getting that here too. Well, I think that's a fantastic um, point to bring today's discussion to a close, thinking about what, what the future holds in terms of uh, you know, di digital uh, impact, both as a tool for making and for communication, for dissemination, and the impact of that perhaps in disrupting some of our established uh, structures for academic engagement. Um, I have to stand up because I haven't got a very loud voice. Um, so it just leaves me to say a huge thank you to all our speakers today. Thank you for travelling uh, to the museum and coming fresh-faced after a transatlantic flight. I think that's quite something. Thank you to Craig and to Paul for bringing this opportunity to the museum. Our research programme is fledgling. We have a couple of collaborative doctoral award students. This is the first AHRC network programme that I've worked on here, and I've been here for nearly 10 years. It's going to be the beginning of, I hope, many more and many more substantive uh, research collaborations. So we really feel um, very privileged to be part of this. Thank you so much. I hope you don't get too wet going home. Just to say, we have recorded all the talks today. We will put them up on the museum SoundCloud. Lancaster will have them linked on your website as well. Um, and we will continue to sort of disseminate uh, the, the content. Everyone who's come today, you automatically have a ticket for the second summit, which as I said will probably be at the um, RSA. We want to open up the um, delegate list to some of their fellows network. We thought because we're focusing next time on design school and industry, it could be really interesting to bring some more um, perhaps diff different perspectives into the room. So we have the uh, allocation of spaces for that. 
Um, is there anything I've forgotten? Does anyone have any questions? Do we all know what we're doing, where we're going, why we're here? Yes? Okay, so thank you very much.